Welcome to the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Oliver Wang, and my guest today is Washington State University professor David Leonard, author of the new book, After Our Test, The NBA and the Assault on Blackness, which just came out on SUNY Press. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks for having me, Oliver. This was, I think, of course, you know, purely coincidental, but your book came out right around the time that Meta World Peace, the baller formerly known as Ron Artest, was given a seven-game suspension uh, in the late part of the, this, this NBA season for delivering a concussion via elbow to the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder player James Harden. And whether that elbow was fully intentional or not, it certainly gave many in the sports world an excuse to flashback to Meta's most infamous episode, uh, which begins your book in many ways, The Palace Brawl of 2004. Now, for those whose social memories don't extend beyond the current season. Can you just briefly describe what happened at Auburn Hills that day? So it was a, a game between the, the Pacers and uh, the Pistons in Palace uh, of Auburn Hills, which for those that don't know, is not in Detroit, like so many NBA stadiums, is in suburbia, uh, which is telling. And the, the game was winding down, and Ben Wallace of the Pistons committed a somewhat hard foul, but hard for the course in the NBA. What happened after that was some pushing and some shoving, what we might call an NBA fight, a lot of a lot of squaring off, and nothing, you know, no punches really were thrown. During the course of this fight, then Ron Artest retreated almost to say, I'm not getting involved. And so he retreated uh, all the way to the scorer's table, where he proceeded to lie down on the scorer's table. Subsequently, a fan threw a cup at him, hit him, and he proceeded to go into the stands. And what, what then happened was a melee involving uh, several Pacer players and many fans. This seemed to have given the NBA, in particular under the leadership of Commissioner David Stern, a reason, an excuse, an opening to begin to enact a series of policies that, as you describe, really went after the, quote, styles, aesthetics, and transparent blackness, unquote, of the league's players. Can you give perhaps just one concrete example of how NBA policy shifted after this incident to, uh, to really go after what they saw as perhaps an excess of blackness in the, in the, in the league? I mean, I, I think uh, the dress code is the, the most clear example. The Palace Brawl became the impetus for ridding the league of any example, any specific utterance of blackness that the Palace Brawl uh, to the league and to its media partners revealed a, a, a tension a level of discomfort that white fans had with the league. And so the dress code was a way of containing and saying, we are going to discipline and punish those players who aren't representing the NBA, who aren't appealing to mainstream white sensibilities. And so the dress code uh, mandating that players not wear, you know, jerseys uh, off the floor, wear "quote unquote" professional clothing, leave uh, chains, headphones, do rags at home. And one of the the examples I, I point to is involving Katino Mobley, who 
during an interview shortly after being traded uh, from the Rockets to the Kings, he was doing an interview and he was wearing a, a skull cap with an NBA insignia. And this was actually prior to the, the, the formalization of the dress code. Uh, and at, shortly after the interview, he was told uh, that if he wore that NBA license, cap, he would be fine. But I think even more than the specific changes, uh, the Palace Brawl really gave license to the media to amplify and give voice to the stereotypes, the discomfort, the tension, the, the distaste that many of them had for the intrusion of, of hip-hop into the NBA. And so things that were long, long said uh, and and coded and kind of said in random ways at random times kind of uh, came together into this perfect storm. And so uh, another example would be the NBA instituting a restriction on straight from high school players. So no longer could could guys go straight from high school into the NBA. And this was something that if you go back into the 90s, media and others expressed discomfort with, that they didn't think it was good for the league. But with the Palace Brawl, uh, one, it brought all these voices together, and two, it gave a way to link discomfort in material ways. Can you explain a little bit about the connection between this and the debates around uh, high school to uh, professional league um players because this is sort of I would say a perpetual debate you know Steve Kerr just recently weighed in on this on, on Grantland there's been pushback because he wants to raise it to uh, to 20 years old I think the current limit is 19 what exactly is the discomfort that people have had with players going straight from high school into the professionals in, in other leagues this isn't as big of an issue I actually don't think it's actually an issue I think that becomes a signifier or a way of marking discomfort, stereotypes, tensions around other aspects in the league in terms of style, in terms of, in terms of swagger, in terms of the fact that the league is 70 to 80 percent black. I think the age just becomes a placeholder, a way of talking about those broader issues without talking about them. Because if you look at the success of players from Kobe Bryant to LeBron James, Dwight Howard, even to, to players who, who were less successful, but were still successful, like Tracy McGrady, uh, Jermaine O'Neal. The argument doesn't hold when we look at basketball, when we look at the number of MVPs, all-star uh, appearances, the Olympic Games. So as a basketball aspect, it, it doesn't make sense. If you look at the various arguments that are made, they kind of manifest around a couple different areas. There is the one aspect where you'll get the likes of, of Steve Kerr um, and uh, other commentators and, and coaches and scouts that say that players would be, quote-unquote, more disciplined on and off the court if they had that college experience. You had one even say that Kobe Bryant may not have gotten into his, his trouble in uh, Colorado had he gone to Duke. So there's clearly this notion that if the league's ballers and primarily black ballers went to college, they would be properly disciplined in both 
the fundamentals of the game, but also respect, quote unquote, for the game. It becomes this way of circulating larger narratives about black unemployment, uh, about poverty, about incarceration rates. So that the concern is that the straight from high school player is sending the wrong message and that that message is leading to other inequalities, other social ills. And of course, that allows for the circulation of a narrative that lets you know, society off the hook, lets institutions off the hook. One of the things I've always been confused about, and this is, I think, related to what we're discussing here, is on the one hand, as far as I can recall, the NBA is quite healthy as a league. Uh, maybe not NFL good, but still pretty, you know, pretty good. Um, but on the other hand, there's this constant hand wringing about how the game is losing white fans, which is, I think, part of the kind of sub narrative that runs underneath a lot of these policies. And can you clear up what exactly is fact and what's fiction here? And why is there a concern over the number of white fans, you know, of basketball, if overall the league is relatively financially healthy? Well, I think the league is trying to balance in terms of fan base, but I actually think it's more about corporate concerns and marketing concerns and just the overall impression about the league. Because, yeah, if you look at things like ratings, if you look at marketing sales, yeah, you've seen ebbs and flows. And this was clearly part of the narrative uh, post-brawl. But that preceded, you know, the Palace Brawl. That was really what is the league in a post-Jordan uh, context. And so you get this fear of will fans gravitate? Will they celebrate? Will they embrace the kind of post-Jordan baller that, that emerges, you know, the likes of Allen Iverson and, and Kobe it's the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Oliver Wang, speaking to professor and author David Leonard, whose new book, After Our Test, The NBA and Atta the Attack on Blackness, is just out on SUNY Press. David, taking a step back and looking at professional sports in general, in just the past nine months or so, we've seen Tebow Mania, Linsanity, and other brief but spectacular examples of obsessive sports reporting, and to me, really myth-making. And I think, obviously, that's part of what sports in general does uh, in terms of, you know, it creates myths, it, it, it whips them along, it fuels them. I'm wondering, as someone who's studied and certainly enjoyed sports for much longer, whether you've seen this uptick in the kind of um, sports reporting and myth-making that I'm addressing here, or if it really has always been like this and perhaps is just a little bit more amplified because of social media, the role of sports networks like ESPN and Fox Sports, et cetera? Obviously, myth-making has is, is always been part of sports. The myth of Michael Jordan being cut from his, his freshman team, going home and pulling himself up by his shoelaces, is part of his appeal. But I do think you're onto an important point that it's clearly different. It's clearly amplified. Uh, it's clearly in that moment. Michael Jordan's mythology didn't happen overnight. It was cultivated. It was constructed. It was probably tested as opposed to Tebow mania or insanity. 
that clearly emerged in a short amount of time because of social media, because of 24-7 Sports Center, it reached heightened proportions. But I think more than that is the rise of the kind of sports debate culture, the, the sensationalism that is required from not only the sports debates that we see on TV, but the, the level of commentary that requires these, this myth-making and this sensationalism. Not to actually contribute to the problem here, but I am wondering, I'm going to put you in sort of the pundit's chair, what do you think was the most legitimate of the big sports stories of the last year? Well, clearly it's not Tim Tebow. Clearly it's not Peyton Manning. I actually think um, of all the, the huge stories of the year, I think Jeremy Lin is the most understandable given the confluence of factors. His story, the Knicks story of their success on the floor, of his personal success, of race, of ethnicity, of social media. To me, we can link and think about all these different things coming together. You live in eastern Washington, but you're a Los Angeles native. And without overstating things, it does seem like the city, at least right now, is enjoying a pretty good run. We have the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Kings in the playoffs. The Dodgers, who looked you know, dead on arrival, now hold the best record in baseball. Is there something about the city and its ability to, to support or promote winning franchises? Or is it just a coincidence that we have, you know, this... At, the, at least at this current moment in May 2012, there just seems, you know, L.A. seems to be at the top of the, the sports world. I think it's just a coincidence at this moment. I mean, just because it's not it's not sustained. Part of why I can't jump on the look at L.A. sports resurgence is it's a bandwagon city. I would guess people are rocking Kings jerseys. Yet... I bet if we, you know, go onto the street and say, what's the blue line or what is icing? I don't know. It's a front running city. That ain't no disrespect, but that's what it is. For me personally, I don't get, you know, people rolling around with their uh, Clipper and Laker flags on their car. All right. Our guest today in the podcast, David Leonard, author of the new book, After Our Test, The NBA and the Assault on Blackness out now on SUNY Press. David, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. Always a good time. The Los Angeles Review of Books podcast is a production of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Catch us at lareviewofbooks.org for the podcast and the review. I'm Oliver Wang.